The <clears throat> title of this evening's talk is Wise Concentration. As I'm sure all of you know, concentration plays an important role in the Buddha's teaching and practice. It's also one of the, or concentration is one of the seven uh, factors of enlightenment. And they've already been mentioned, but I'll mention them again. Mindfulness, investigation, effort or energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. It's also one of what are called the five controlling faculties, which are faith, effort, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom, which, when uh, fully developed, become the five uh, spiritual powers. And we'll begin this evening's uh, talk this evening's discussion with uh, three Pali words, sila, samadhi, panya. Pali words that translate into English as virtue or ethical behavior, concentration, and wisdom, which are the three divisions or three headings of the eightfold path of practice given to us by the Buddha. Over his 45 years of teaching, the Buddha spoke many times about these three particular aspects of mind and practice as being the essential and indispensable basis of his own practice. Virtue, concentration, and wisdom insight. These three form the three branches of mental development that are essential to all Buddhist practice. The development and the combination of the first two of these qualities or capacities of mind and heart, virtue and concentration, are what lead one into Vipassana, what lead one into the deeply penetrative understanding that comes about through the direct meditative experience of the three liberating insights. That of anicca, the impermanency of all mental and physical phenomena. Dukkha, the essential unsatisfactoriness of all worldly mental and physical occurrences and anatta, the impersonality of all of the material and mental phenomena of existence. These are the three profound insights that lead one on to the final liberating insights. In the Buddha's words, as he often did, he starts with a question. And then he goes on to answer the question that he poses. So this is a question from the Buddha. If concentration, samadhi, is developed, what profit does it bring? And he responds with this answer. The mind is developed. Then he asks another question. If the mind is developed, what profit does it bring? And he responds with the answer, all lust is abandoned. And then he goes on, if insight is developed, what profit does it bring? And he responds, wisdom is developed. And then the next question is, if wisdom is developed, what profit does it bring? And he responds saying, all ignorance is abandoned. So, concentration, samadhi, 
meditation practice and vipassana, insight meditation practice, in particular alternating and supporting each other, sequences are cultivated and developed throughout our practice. And all of this rests on the essential foundation of the gradual process of purification that comes through the practice and the understanding that blossoms through our exploration of sila with its underlying principle of non-harming. As the teachings and the practices of sila, of virtue, as they deepen and as they mature within us, we come to understand through our very own direct experience what brings happiness, contentment, and ease on a deeper and deeper and more profound level, and what brings suffering and confusion, what brings dis-ease. Intimately connected to the understanding that the practice of sila affords us is the recognition and seeing our self-identification in relationship to our habits of attraction, meaning greed, clinging, attachment, and our habits of aversion, worry, resistance, anger, and fear, confusion, and doubt. These habits of mind are the primary mental and physical phenomena that create suffering and lead to what we call rebirth, or what is called rebirth, over and over again in this very here and now momentary round of worldly suffering. And the Pali word for that being samsara. These habits of mind are also what keep us from developing a deep and further purifying concentration, a deep and further purifying samadhi. And these habits of mind keep us far from our main goal, that of recognizing the nature of things, recognizing what is often called ultimate reality, and thus keeping us from awakening, keeping us from the liberation of the heart and mind. The true nature of things, ultimate reality, is the principle that all mental and physical phenomena, people, mountains, galaxies, California, Toronto, Iraq, dogs, Taos, Lumbini, thoughts, feelings, rain, one's aging body, New York, sunshine, your favorite restaurant, (laughs) American Airlines, and on and on and on, are understood, are regarded as being without substantial sustaining essence, as being without any separate, solid, sustaining self-identity. In order to see the true nature of existing phenomena, we need to purify the mental cloudiness. We need to part the veil, untangle the tangle that keeps us from seeing it. And this occurs through the practices of sila, samadhi, and panya, all of which are rooted in concentration and mindfulness. In speaking to Ananda in the Kimata Sutta from the Anguttara Nikaya, the Buddha again asks a question and then uh, he proceeds to answer it. And this is from the Sutta. And the Buddha speaking, What is the purpose of skillful virtues? What is their reward? 
And he goes on. Skillful virtues have freedom from remorse as their purpose, Ananda, and freedom from remorse as their reward. Freedom from remorse has joy as its purpose, joy as its reward. Joy has rapture as its purpose, rapture as its reward. Rapture has serenity as its purpose, serenity as its reward. Serenity has pleasure as its purpose, pleasure as its reward. Pleasure has concentration as its purpose, concentration as its reward. Concentration has knowledge and vision of things as they actually are as its purpose, knowledge and vision of things as they actually are as its reward. In this way, Ananda, skillful virtues lead step by step to the consummation of arhantship. And in speaking to his monks and nuns directly about his own process and his own experience, the Buddha said, it's owing to the development of virtue, concentration, and wisdom that enlightenment has been fully realized. In order for us to learn how to properly apply these three active forces of purification, virtue, concentration, and wisdom. Just as the Buddha did, we also need to learn directly from our own experience. And, as we all know, often from some of our most difficult experiences, and sometimes also from what we may deem to be our mistakes, as well as learning from our quieter, pleasant, beautiful, and subtler experiences. We could say that the purification of the mind, the purification of the heart, is synonymous with this act of learning, or these acts of learning. And so this evening, taking a look at the active force of samadhi, the active force of concentration. The unperturbed, peaceful, and lucid state of mind attained by the practice and the process of strong mental concentration. The process of gathering in, the process of gathering together the energy, the potentially powerful energy of the mind, which is ordinarily really quite dispersed. We could say that the initial act of concentration is that of reining the mind in from all of its myriad distractions and then learning, really learning how to focus it by coming back again and again and again to the very simple presence, present so that our mental and our physical energy isn't being used up or isn't being usurped in unconscious and unskillful ways. The notion of the developing mind really lies at the heart of all Buddhist traditions. And one important aspect of this development has to do with strengthening one's ability to focus, to stabilize, and to direct the mind, rather than allowing it to be carried off over and over again by whatever breezes waft in upon it from any of the sense doors or from its own unconscious. So in light of this, we might ask ourselves the question, does your mind control you or do you control your mind? 
So, for instance, if your intention is to keep the attention on the breath, but the mind wanders off at the very slightest provocation, then your ability to focus the mind isn't yet very well developed. One of the wonderful things about our practice, one of the wonderful things that our practice offers us, is that remaining focused on a chosen object is a skill that can be learned. And like any other skill, by practice, by patient repetition, and by gradual development, we learn. The Visuddhimagga, the profoundly detailed Buddhist treatise on the process of purification, uses a number of very graphic uh, metaphors to describe the process of the development and the act of concentration. I'd like to share a couple of these uh, metaphors with you. The bee follows up the scent of a flower, then dives towards the flower, first stopping and buzzing above it, getting to know it, we could say, before diving into it, and then absorbing into it. A metaphor for preliminary access and absorption concentration, which we'll talk a little bit more about uh, uh, later on in the talk. Another metaphor offered in the Visuddhimagga that I particularly uh, resonate with uh, because of my own experience in making pottery is this. A lump of clay sits on a spinning potter's wheel. Centering the clay, the potter brings both hands directly onto the clay, holding, staying there with a very strong and yet very relaxed, focused attention of mind and body. Staying, sustaining attention and energy, totally undistracted as the clay is centered on the wheel. Then the potter, with a continued, continuing focus of attention, with one hand directly on the clay, steadily holding and supporting the clay, the other hand also continuing to sustain contact with the clay, which continues to be the object of attention. The other hand is moving back and forth, up and down, informing the clay at the same time as being informed by it. And a bowl forms. Really quite a graphic and visceral metaphor, especially if any of you have uh, tried to make something on a potter's wheel with clay. A very graphic and visceral metaphor for the development and process of concentration. With the mind, with the heart, moving into deeper states of samadhi. The power of a clear, relaxed, and focused mind, a concentrated mind, it brings together and re-stimulates itself again and again re-stimulates the energy and effort needed for the next moment of continuing the process of its own development. We could say that a concentrated mind feeds itself, strengthening its ability to stay present with the object of attention and not attach itself to other things. It's just where it is, pure, clear, calm really quite an energizing, refreshing, and often beautiful experience. Because our exploration this evening is primarily 
devoted to the purifying and beautiful current of samadhi, concentration, I, I think it would be uh, helpful for us to begin to explore and, and learn a bit more about the basis, the process, and the fruits of concentration. The wholesome states that accompany concentration, calm, joy, tranquility, happiness, peace, and equanimity, along with the deeper states of concentration called jhana, they can't grow when the unwholesome mind states of attachment, aversion, sleepiness, agitation, worry, and doubt are occurring. Seeing and understanding the difference between wholesome states of mind and unwholesome states of mind is essential for the development and the blossoming of concentration and its attendant wholesome states. So a simple example, if you try to concentrate on a meditation subject such as the rising and falling movement of the breath. And you're anxious or worried during the process. Calm and joy will be prevented from arising. Why? Because worry enslaves us. When the With the practice of concentration, one really needs to be willing. There needs to be a willingness to let go of thought, to a willingness to not be seduced by thoughts. I've often said that I think thought is the most seductive human experience. I've had people argue that with me, but I think it's true. One needs to be willing to cut through thoughts, so to say. Even thoughts that might really seem so important in the moment. And it's very important to note here that this is not about kicking out thoughts. It's not about booting thoughts out. Booting out thoughts is rooted in an attitude of aversion, aversion to thought in this case. So it's important to be sensitive to that relationship, your relationship to thoughts. What's meant here is, or what's meant here is rooted in a clarity of intention and seeing and knowing when the attention gets muddled, when the attention gets muddled or lost in something other than what is intended. This is really the first and maybe the most important and maybe the most difficult step of the practice of developing concentration. Because our mind can get lost in myriad, myriad mundane and seemingly lofty thoughts and actions thinking that whatever it is, is really very, very important. I had such an experience uh, during a three-month retreat that I sat a a number of years ago that was um, uh, devoted to the development of concentration. For the first week or so of that retreat, each day after lunch, I would make myself uh, a fancy cup of tea by taking two or three uh, loose teas and mixing them together in a tea ball. An important and seemingly necessary treat that I needed, or that I wanted anyway, and thought I needed. Towards the end of this week, I noticed a box of tea bags sitting on the counter that was one of the same teas that I was putting into my fancy mix. 
well, it had been sitting there all along, but the mind uh, hadn't connected with, with it, connected to it with a clear awareness until that particular moment. But when seeing that, the thought came, do I really need this? Is all this fancy tea preparation and seeming need, is this really important? Well, no, came the internal answer. No, it's not at all important. It's merely a habitual distraction. So that day and then ongoing, I made a simple cup of tea with a tea bag and enjoyed it. And it was enough, just enough. What happened after this is what was really important. Quite spontaneously, at times throughout the rest of this three-month retreat, the question, is this really important, would come up in relationship to various mundane actions, in relationship to various thoughts, and various thought patterns. And the answer was almost always, if not pretty much 100% of the time, Quite clearly, and more and more obviously, the answer was no. And so I would just simply let go of whatever it was at that point. The development of a wholesome concentration requires of us that we have insight of some depth and a growing interest and understanding regarding the difference between wholesome and unwholesome states of mind. And this can get very subtle as our practice goes on. One of the most wonderful and amazing fruits that inevitably occurs through the process of developing concentration is that the mind and the heart are continually being purified from the various permutations of greed, aversion, lethargy, restlessness, and doubt. Little by little by little. Classically, the development of concentration, uh, and maybe for some people at some point, jhana, concentration, is described as the purification of the mind. And as I mentioned at the beginning, of this uh, uh, exploration, the Buddha said in response to his question about the development of concentration, the mind is developed. Samadhi, or the development of calm and concentration, seriously weakens the hindrances. It has an effect on the weakening of the hindrances. It considerably weakens all of the unwholesome states of mind. When calm, joy, tranquility, blissful happiness, peace, and equanimity, the fruits of concentration practice, when they clearly manifest, the hindrances, these unwholesome states, are temporarily, and that's important, temporarily eliminated, as well as considerably weakened in the long run. Particularly as one's concentration develops and deepens. And even more specifically, if one, uh, one's mind inclines toward attaining the deeper states of concentration, jhana. So taking a bit of a look now at how the different factors of deepening concentration quite specifically address different states of mind and body that hinder the development of concentration and that very much also hinder the unfolding of insight. To begin with, overall calm, the development of a more tranquil body and mind, is an antidote for feeling perturbed, obviously. And it's an antidote for feeling perturbed. 
calm and tranquility free the mind, free the heart from the impurities of inner obstacles, thus giving the mind a greater penetrative strength or possibility of strength, penetrative strength. The mental state of initially applying the attention, initially applying the mind, aiming and applying the attention again and again to the object, and the word for this in Pali is vitaka. With the establishment of the mind on an object, such as the sensations and the movement in the belly of the rising and the falling of the breath, eventually this eliminates dullness, sleepiness, and stiffness. The sustained application of the mind, a continuous sustained attention on the object, and the Pali word for this is vichara, this eventually eliminates uncertainty. It eliminates doubt in those moments of sustained attention. The deeply concentrated and mindful state of joyful zest, bright happiness and elation in the mind, resulting from the developing purity of the mind, the developing purity of the heart. And the word for that, those states are piti in Pali. And this brings a delighted interest in and liking of the object of, of, the, the object of attention, such as the breath. And with the developing and deepening of concentration, ill will is temporarily inhibited. You've probably noticed this. And the concentrated and mindful state of bliss, a sense of state of contentment, a kind of sweet, easeful happiness. The Pali word for this is sukha which in its maturity is, it's not a pleasant bodily feeling, but a blissful, contented mental feeling. When this occurs to varying degrees with deepening concentration, restlessness, agitation, regret, and worry are temporarily eliminated or temporarily inhibited. And lastly, the steady, undistracted attention of the one-pointed focus of a deepening concentration, and the Pali word for this is ikagata, again occurring in varying degrees during the development stages of concentration. Ikagata is the experience of a clear and strong centeredness, balance and equanimity. And during that time that that's in place and that's the experience that's being experienced, sensuous desire for anything is inhibited. It's at bay. It's not in the field of our experience at that point, in in those moments. As samadhi or concentration develops and as it moves along and the states that corrupt the natural purity of the mind, that corrupt the natural purity of the heart, when at least some of these imperfections, some of these afflictive states have been clearly let go or at least temporarily abandoned, temporarily relinquished, at that time one really truly knows and gains a much fuller and much deeper confidence in and connection to one's own practice. And when this confidence arises, the mind and the heart often experience great inspiration, enthusiasm, and appreciation connected to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And to one's own 
particular teacher. As awakening beings, when we begin to directly experience and to know ourselves as purified of unwholesome states, when we directly experience and know ourselves as at least partially liberated from them, a great and wholesome gladness and gratitudes is born in us. And with the blossoming and the maturing of this gladness, a joyful zest and a taste of a balanced elation, which is sometimes defined as rapture, or or we'll leave it at that, sometimes defined as rapture, is born in us. With this joy and the knowing of it, without any attachment, without any personal identification in those moments, which is very important, the body and the mind eventually become quite tranquil. With the maturing of tranquility, both the more overt and the subtle bodily and mental disturbances that are connected with gladness and joy, they're removed. They disappear with the calm and the quiet. They disappear with the serene pleasure of tranquility. When we experience tranquility, we feel pleasure. When pleasure is felt, and again this is important, without any attachment, without any self-identification in those moments, the mind is then prepared for deeper concentration. And of course this whole process must be accompanied by a continuous and sustained mindful presence. Another way of saying this is that a deeply concentrated mind is a purified mind, which opens the heart to wholesome gladness and gratitude with no attachment. And this brings the serene pleasure of tranquility, which is the ground for deepening or deeper concentration, and on and on it goes. Consequently, at this point, the mind and the heart are very strong. And so in this light, the skill that has been developed is one's ability to resist or one's ability to deflect the influence of raga. Raga is the Pali word that is literally translated as unwholesome passion. And it's often used synonymously with desire, craving, attachment, or clinging, which is really the core cause of dukkha, the core cause of suffering. At the time of the Buddha, an analogy that was often used regarding this aspect of the development of the mind was that the effectiveness of a well-thatched roof lies in its ability to deflect moisture and protect the contents of the house from getting soaked. With the analogy being that a well-developed mind will be aware of an unwholesome thought or emotion that has arisen or will be aware of a provocative sense door input but will allow these to roll off the mind and not penetrate into the immediately following mind moments to drench the mind with clinging or drench the mind with aversion. A similar image often used was that of water rolling off a lotus leaf or the water rolling off the feathers of a duck. The nature of concentration is threefold. In other words, there are three types or three levels of concentration that can be developed and serve our insight practice. The first of these is called momentary concentration. 
and the Pali word is kanika samadhi. This is the development and growing maturation of one's ability to focus on one object after another, after another, after another. The development of our capacity to clearly connect with one object, then another object, then another object, one by one by one, and ongoing, moment by moment by moment. The cultivation of one's capacity for momentary concentration is essential for insight practice. The second type or level of concentration is called access concentration, or sometimes it's called neighborhood concentration. And in Pali it's upachara samadhi. And this is a very deep and powerful concentration that occurs just before the mind moves into absorption or jhana concentration and can be reaccessed and used for insight practice upon coming out of jhana. Access concentration is often experienced as similar to the intensity and the depth of jhana, but it's not an absorbed concentration. It's not an absorbed concentration. It doesn't stay focused on one object at the exclusion of other objects, as does jhana. With upachara, or excess concentration, the mind is malleable. It's able to move from one object to another object, one object, object to object, even though it contains close to the same intensity of the deeply absorbed jhana states. So from this perspective, (coughs) access concentration can be very helpful and very useful in the unfolding of insight practice. And the third type of concentration is jhana concentration. And this is a concentrated mind that completely absorbs into one object at the exclusion of all other objects. When the mind is absorbed in this way, it's not possible for the mind to do anything else at that time. With the attainment of each of the first four jhanas, the mind is temporarily totally purified of specific unwholesome mind states that are in relationship to each of the jhanas. While at the same time, unwholesome states of mind are considerably weakened in the long run, though they're not totally and finally eliminated. It's only through vipassana practice, it's only through insight practice, mindfulness-based insight practice, that wholesome or afflictive states of mind are totally eliminated. The development of concentration will quite naturally take place in our vipassana practice. As you all know, it's taking place. It's developing. Particularly momentary concentration. Especially when we begin to meet all of the various body-mind phenomena with less and less clinging, less and less attachment and identification, but rather with an interested, investigative attitude. The development of jhana and excess concentration takes a very specific and concerted effort that really is not everyone's inclination or interest. Or it might be of interest, but it might not be one's inclination. And it's not absolutely necessary for a potentially liberating vipassana insight practice to unfold. As concentration develops, slowly we gain the wisdom and the confidence to allow ourselves to wholeheartedly meet experience with no self, meaning no me, no I am, while at the same time being clearly present and mindfully aware of what's taking place, but with no pondering, 
no inner commentary, no thinking about what's occurring, and not making something out of experience, but rather receiving, sensing, seeing, and knowing experience just as it is. In light of this, I'd like to share a simple and potentially illuminating story with you about two significant times and aspects of the Buddha's life. After six years of engaging in extreme ascetic practices and finding that, in fact, they weren't bringing the liberation of heart and mind that he was seeking, it's said that the bodhisattva, and if some of you may not know what that word actually means, bodhi, uh, breaking it down, bodhi means awakening or enlightenment, and sattva is a being, a being who's dedicated to, or a being having the strong intention to bodhi, the strong intention to awaken. It's said that the bodhisattva, Siddhartha Gotama, asked himself, after these six years of extreme ascetic practices, could there be another path to enlightenment? In reflection with this inner questioning, an image, the, a memory uh, of a particular experience from his childhood appeared to Siddhartha. He remembered a particular spring day when he was a boy of six. That morning his father had taken him to the spring plowing festival, a time each year when the, all the men in the community, rich and poor alike, came together for a day of plowing up the earth, an annual ritual marking the beginning of the spring planting season. Young Siddhartha quite spontaneously and quite naturally sat up in the meditation posture, comfortably and quietly as he sat under a sweet-smelling rose apple tree. Observing the scene that was unfolding before him with a very open and alert and unfettered attention that children sometimes give to things. Nothing really on his mind. In those moments of not wanting and not fearing anything, he was aware of the earth breaking open in even wave-like furrows. He noticed the heat shimmering up off the freshly opened soil. He was aware of the shining on the sweating faces and the straining bodies of the men and the oxen. And he noticed the flash and the sparkling of sunlight coming off the bronze harnesses and the dark horns of the oxen. He felt the plodding rhythm of the oxen's hooves and the cowbells rolling on and on and on amidst the strong, sharp shouts of the men as they worked. He also clearly heard the beautiful sound of the bird song, as well as the shrill cries of the birds as they dove and pecked and devoured the swarming insects and the grubs the worms and the broken bodies of the mice left out on the upturned earth. All of this laboring, devouring, struggling, suffering, and dying, endlessly going on beneath and right along with the gaiety, the joy, and the beauty of that spring festival day. All of this entered into young Siddhartha's mind and heart as he sat alone, clearly focused and deeply relaxed under the tree, open-heartedly experiencing the scene before him. And his mind, his heart, finding no resistance, no tension, no inner conflict, Nothing to add, nothing to take away, no picking, no choosing. As he silently sat quite still and 
secluded from sensual pleasures and secluded from unwholesome states of mind, taking all of this in without prejudice and without attachment and finding himself all alone, he quite spontaneously and naturally attained a deep state of concentration through mindfulness of breathing. Experiencing a bright, sweet pleasure and a joyful happiness that wasn't born out of desire for or clinging to anything. And in his young mind, a deep intuitive understanding was seeded. As a young man in the midst of practicing extreme austerities of the body and then remembering this uh, boyhood experience, this particular experience, the thought occurred to Siddhartha. Could that be the path to enlightenment? And it said that following up on this memory from his childhood, the bodhisattva became filled with energy and a sureness that this, in fact, was a footstep on the path to liberation. And he resolved to sit quietly and press forward in deep meditation until he reached full understanding, until he reached true freedom. This was a turning point for the Buddha to be in his quest for awakening, in his quest for enlightenment. This was a turning point and a change in his relationship to suffering and in his evaluation of pleasure. He understood that pleasant experiences or pleasant experience was no longer to be feared and banished by the practice of extreme austerities. At that most important point of turning, in his quest for liberation. Siddhartha realized that the confusion, the misunderstanding, the delusion, the greed, anger, anguish, and hatred, all of the dark and afflictive states of mind wouldn't be, and in fact couldn't be, purified, banished, released, or relinquished by creating hardship for oneself and then putting up with it or by just living through them or through stealing oneself and then toughing it out in relationship to these self-inflicted hardships or by struggling to or trying hard to let go of the painful mind states related to extreme austere practices or by trying to lose one's self in self-created physical and mental hardship. And if you consider your own life, how many times in small, even maybe in tiny ways or possibly even in extreme ways, have you, out of ignorance, out of delusion, out of misunderstanding, been attracted to and chosen to engage in mental fantasies, various situations, activities, relationships that created hardship, or maybe a certain flavor of austerity in your life, and maybe even extreme hardship or extreme austerity even though you may not have realized that that's what you were doing, that it, what you thought it was going to make you happy. And in your own way, doing just what the Buddha did and thinking just as he did, that this would, that these fantasies, these situations, activities or relationships would somehow bring a sustaining joy, a sustaining happiness and ease into your life. We've all done that. Potentially a certain degree of 
mental strength might be gained. It probably is gained. But the light at the end of the tunnel, the light of liberation, can never be seen, felt, and known with this way. As a young man, in remembering his childhood experience, Siddhartha realized that pleasure was no longer to be feared and banished through the practice of extreme austerities, that this would never bring a sustaining sense of freedom and well-being. He understood that when pleasure is born internally, with a mind, with a heart that's secluded, that's free from mental and bodily hindrances of lethargy and restlessness and greed and clinging, free from the various permutations of aversion and confusion and doubt. He understood that when pleasure is born of seclusion, clear, concentrated, and mindful presence and detachment, that it's not only okay, but that it's a valuable and necessary accompaniment along the path to liberation. And that it in fact points to the sustaining happiness of a heart, of a mind, that's no longer run by the energies of greed, clinging, fear, judgment, anger, and confusion. That in fact it points to the sustaining happiness and ease of a heart, of a mind, that's liberated, that's awakened. In remembering his childhood experience, the Bodhisattva came to understand that the development of a deep concentration, and for him, uh, jhana, was a footstep on the path to awakening, an important and useful footstep on the way to liberation. And as the Buddha expressed it in the Majjhima Nikaya, in his greater discourse to Sakaka, he said, I thought, why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states? I thought, I'm not afraid of that pleasure since it has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states. And then the Buddha goes on to tell Sakaka that at that point he made the decision to stop engaging in extreme practices, austere practices. And that very soon after this, he was offered some solid food by a young village girl, and he regained his strength. And then he went and sat in meditation under a Bodhi tree. And he goes on speaking with Sakaka, saying that being quite secluded from sensual pleasures and unwholesome states, he entered into the deep concentration of the first, second, third, and fourth jhana. And that with each of these pleasurable abidings, in the Buddha's words he said, but such pleasant feeling that arose in me did not invade my mind and remain. When my concentrated mind was thus purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, meaning equanimity. He tells Sakaka that he systematically attained each of the liberating insight knowledges one by one through that now very famous night under the Bodhi tree. As a child, this natural state of an undisturbed, purified mind is something that young Siddhartha kind of wandered into, we could say. The world outside going on just as it is. Thoughts and feelings arising and changing, coming and going. No different in those moments than anything else in the world. Nothing to agree with, nothing to argue with, nothing to cling to, and nothing to push away or run from. And yet this natural state of an undisturbed mind 
isn't really so easy to wander into for most of us. We often have a mind made up, often absolutely made up about how it's supposed to be, how it isn't supposed to be, what's good, what's bad, what we definitely know is true, what we definitely know isn't true. And we also often have a mind made up about what we must have or must not have in order to be happy and even in order to practice meditation. A mind made up. A mind that clings to what it's made up. This is what prevents us from directly, clearly and honestly meeting the moment we're in. Keeping us in conflict. Keeping us shut off to the vastness of possibility. Keeping us shut off from the possibility of wandering into the natural state of an undisturbed mind. This is essentially the cause of our suffering and what prevents the mind, what prevents the heart from calmly and peacefully connecting directly and clearly with present moment moment experience, both internal and external experience. As I mentioned earlier in this discussion, the teachings and the practices that we've inherited from the Buddha fall into three basic currents. The current of sila, the teaching and practice of virtue, the current of samadhi, the teaching and practice of concentration, and the current of panya, the teaching and practice of wisdom. These three currents are what carried the Buddha and what carry us along and across the great and often challenging river of life. Carry us to the other side, to the side of peaceful, of a peaceful, easeful, awakened presence. To the side of living life within the natural state of an undisturbed mind and heart. The current of the samadhi, the development of concentration, is beautiful. It's potentially healing and powerful in and of itself. And at whatever level one is able to develop a concentrated mind, from the perspective of the Buddha Dhamma, it's ultimately and it's essentially to be used towards our main goal, that of seeing the true nature of existing phenomena, parting the veil, untangling the tangle that keeps us from seeing it, so that we really recognize the nature of things, recognize ultimate reality, and awaken out of the sleepy cloud of delusion. And so, as awakening beings, here we are, right now, more than 2,500 years later, after this story of uh, the Buddha and his young life uh, that I just shared with you. And thanks to Siddhartha Gautama, thanks to his diligent and very powerful six years of practice, here we are exploring and learning from his direct experience and the inspired and very amazing gift of clarity of his ability to pass it on to others. In closing the talk this evening, I'd just like to say that it's essential that you hold your practice in the light of honesty, humility, patience, and a diligent, open-hearted interest. And hold yourself in your practice, within your practice, with deep kindness 
and patience. These wholesome and beautiful human qualities will without a doubt serve the blossoming of sila, samadhi, and panya. And without a doubt are some of the basic roots and basic forces of purity that the fruits of our practice stem from. In closing the talk this evening with a poem uh, from a favorite poet, Mary Oliver, that speaks to this evening's topic uh, with her quite unique and uh, beautiful way. And in relationship to this evening's topic, in a somewhat oblique uh, and yet very moving way. And the title of this poem is Such Singing in the Wild Branches. It was spring, and I finally heard him among the first leaves. Then I saw him clutching the limb in an island of shade with his red-brown feathers all trim and neat for the new year. First I stood still and thought of nothing. Then I began to listen. Then I was filled with gladness, and that's when when it happened. When I seemed to float, to be myself a wing or a tree, and I began to understand what the bird was saying. And the sands in the glass stopped for a pure white moment, while gravity sprinkled upward like rain, rising. And in fact, it became difficult to tell just what it was that was singing. It was the thrush for sure, but it seemed not a single thrush, but himself and all his brothers and sisters, and also the trees around them, as well as the gliding, long-tailed clouds in the perfectly blue sky. All of them were singing. And of course, yes, so it seemed, so was I. Such soft and solemn and perfect music doesn't last for more than a few moments. It's one of those magical places wise people like to talk about. One of the things they say about it that is true is that once you've been there, you're there forever. Listen, everyone has a chance. Is it spring? Is it morning? Are there trees near you? And does your own soul need comforting? Quick then, open the door and fly on your heavy feet. The song may already be drifting away. Let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.